Hello, and welcome to episode eight of the Real Professional Podcast. My name is Ted, and uh, I'm here today with Jesse and Matthew Meyer to talk with Andre Madzrak from Bloober Team, head writer. I know I got that name wrong, shit, but there's only so much I can do. Uh, and oh. we're going to we're going to be talking about video games today and uh, most importantly the the black hole of Fortnite. So stay tuned and DJ drop that sick beat. To real professional, the podcast where air quotes real professionals talk to non air quotes real professionals about all aspects of the gaming industry. Uh, we just had our musical interlude, which means it's now time for news, 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 news. stories this week uh there's only one story that says news 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 is all the other news 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 and that is uh the Fortnite black hole that has changed the world for millions of five-year-olds all over the planet yeah. i i was trying to figure out who we're going to bring on to talk about uh the wants and desires of small children and i realized that our last week's blizzard correspondent matthew meyer is the foremost authority on what both children and man children want so matt how you doing <laughs> I'm doing fantastic. It's another lovely weekend. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you're you're located in, in Tucson, which um, this is true. Last time I visited him, I uh, was trying to get in my car and had to do a stare down with a pig monster. What are they called? Javelinas. <laughs> Javelinas. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're rough. They got those sharp little fang, uh, not fangs, tusks. Yeah. You know, how big was the one you saw? Uh, it, I mean, it's not large enough that I should have been scared of it because no, like, I mean any size you see them, no, they get you free. should legitimately get scared of it because yeah. it will charge you for literally no reason and gore you, and then the infection you get will be we'll like Civil War era. Levels. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna have to saw your leg off. <laughs> Jesus, and they get big, like you know, you know, I don't know how big the one you saw was, but they get like the size of a Volkswagen Bug. Well, luckily, and nowhere near as bad as the uh, as the mountain lions. <laughs> luckily, I I live in the state of Arizona, so I was just there was able a story a while over. back about a uh, about a you know mountain cobra that ate one of those Volkswagen sized javelinas whole. Yeah, they're nowhere I, nearly as big as the as the eagles. Listen. Nothing wants to eat a javelina because they stink like shit. But speaking of Tucson and why I'm here and what we're talking about is in a place where every animal is either venomous or dangerous at night, um, children spend a lot of time indoors. And when they're indoors, they're playing a lot of games. Good segue. They're playing a lot of game, and that game is Fortnite. No, they're playing two games. Fortnite One is Fortnite. The other is Minecraft. Minecraft. They literally talk about nothing else. Just those two. Yeah, and this is weird because uh, Minecraft uh, is 
I we like we played Minecraft when we yes. were like younger. Mm-hmm. But did you watch the Minecraft story mode movie that was directly broadcasted to children? Oh, they, that's the the Minecraft story mode. There was a game, right? There was a show. They there was, a, there was show. a Telltale game. There was a Telltale game, and then there was a show, and then there were toys, and then there were streamers. Did you know that they make toys based off of Minecraft streamers? Oh, no. Yeah, like, you can buy, because they all use their little custom models in the game. You can oh, buy those at Target and shit. That's disgusting. Did you know that middle schoolers today know who Dan TDM is, but they don't know who Teddy Roosevelt is? Who's that, Dan TDM? You know that Ninja is going to get... Dan TDM, he's a, a very prolific Minecraft YouTuber um, who made his rise off of doing gameplay videos and YouTube videos. And his specific thing, he's British, and he doesn't use any profanity in his videos, which is a big part of the youth market. Because yeah. you have to be able to get viewers without saying, you know, like, shit and fuck and all those words that, like, their mom will not let them watch the video if you do. And yeah, so, that is, like... I don't know. I, I, there's something deep inside me that just like wretches and reacts to like hearing that this Minecraft YouTuber. But then like you tell me that his his shtick is that he doesn't swear, and I'm like, that's actually not like the worst thing. Yeah, that can that can be worse. Yeah, like I, I yeah, but I'm the like bad the, guy the main, here. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's like the main thing behind his content. Like he wants to stream and you know you target a demographic but this is the truth that has been behind marketing forever who was the number one demographic that everyone should target it's like children big three jews big three no <laughs> did you say tween jews age, yeah okay tween, tween, tween age girls uh-huh. right girls ages like nine to 14 the morbidly obese saudi princes and homosexuals. Those are oh. the three biggest consumers right there. I don't know. Okay. Saudi princes are up there. So I guess it's good that we had a morbidly obese homosexual teenage girl on in the form of Matt. <laughs> yeah. So pretty much, I like know that whole demo. But you have to realize like youth culture is a big thing. And video game culture is not really into, you know, the younger crowd. First of all, if we're on video games to vent, you really don't want to just be like, corrupting children like no one goes and goes like yeah what i want to do today oh i just want to teach a little kid a bunch of curse words but i mean there's plenty of counter-strike gamers who who corrupted a whole generation of little kids yeah well that's that's the thing right is that i think the big separation between the current market of like kids games versus the old market of kids games like the old market of kids games was like timon and pumbaa typing but what you really wanted to play was counter-strike and then you played counter-strike and someone like sprayed goatsy on the wall like because you used to be able to customize your god no one's even gonna <laughs> know what the fuck we're talking about people would goatsy, like spray horrifying imi- what don't google it yeah. don't google it yeah people used to spray horrifying imagery on the wall because it was like funny it was. It's. I mean, I, that's probably why I have the sense of humor I do, but I used to think it was hilarious. And um, so you'd, like, spray these terrible things on the wall, and then, like, someone would talk about, like, oh, I found this on 4chan, and then all of a sudden you're, like, learning what 4chan is, and then you're on 4chan, and you're like, what's this subreddit, and not, well, this, this slash B forum? You know, and it's, then it's just, like, a, a anime titties, and it's like, oh, my God, I'm getting so corrupted so fast. It's the I digital mean, leaded gasoline that's... Just, you know, poisoning your I mind. Think, 
I feel that people who are in their late 20s now are from the generation that's kind of like the lost children of the internet or internet elementals, if uh, you will. Netscape nomads. Where our, our parents just are just like, I have no clue what's on the computer and I really don't care. And we saw everything. We saw Goatsy. We saw Two Girls, One Cup. I mean, the number of people that tricked me into going to LemonParty.org it's just like <laughs> you mean there was more than one how many times did you fall for that <laughs> so like but that that led to a whole like generation of youth culture which was like based on racism and sexual assault like do you remember how often okay i'm just gonna out myself here when i was like a teenager how often i sent pictures of my own dick to people because i thought it was hilarious when they opened their phone and saw a picture of my dick like that was like a formative part of my youth i remember like specifically matt was sitting in an airport and he's like hey ted i need a cool background for my phone we're like both 16 at this point and he's like can you send me a cool picture for a new background for my phone and what did i send you matt um, well, I can't say because then it, you would be under arrest for soliciting child <laughs> pornography because that's the world we live in now where these right. things aren't okay and phones are overseen and they're looked at and parents are constantly clued in. Like, you know, the children in my life, their phones, every message they send is sent to a third party oversight program that's maintained by their parents until they're 18. So if a kid from school sends a 4chan-esque image or something like that, it immediately alerts them and then the principal has to deal with that. I mean, we even had, um, you know, the other day, they're like, this happened at home. This is an issue for the police, not an issue for the school. But when things happen between children, where's the first place parents will go? You know? Yeah. Well, that's, and that's the thing, right, is that, like, I remember, like, we, 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 we like, will make fun of kids for, like, flossing nowadays, the, the stupid Fortnite dance. And having dental hygiene. Wait, have you seen the, the kid who's doing the Fortnite dance, and he does the one where you, like, jump on one foot, and you pump your fist, and you kick your foot, and his phone pops out of his hoodie front pocket, and then he kicks it straight into a ravine. And I did see gone. that, yeah. <laughs> it's so dope. That's a, it's so good. God, God is great. But like, these are the things that like kids are doing for memes. Like nowadays, what we used to do for memes, like back in my like old days, was to like link people shit that was gonna make them throw up, you know. And like here yeah. we are making fun of them when we're like, oh look at these kids with their silly, silly Fortnites. And like back in our days, like we were just you know we'll committing to, sex crimes. We'll like seriously, to, we'll have to put a what? link for like Tub Girl and uh, <laughs> Meat Spin in the descript in the podcast. Description. You know, Meat Spin doesn't I, even exist anymore. Oh damn! Yeah, it got taken down. Pour one out for a fallen. Uh... <laughs> pour, pour one out for Meat Spin, guys. I just want to say that it's very important. One of the main news stories that I was following a few months ago was how Tumblr was bought by Yahoo for like a billion dollars and they just sold it for like three million. Oh my God, I know, right? Because yeah. they took all the porn off of it because they like, we don't want porn on this website. They didn't realize it was like 98% like interest fetish websites and porn and like images and stuff. But the one thing, the key point of all this versus like what we did and what was going on is I feel that we were kind of using games to link ourselves to like adults and just all the things you don't do on the internet now there's like so many like psas and training programs that you know like teachers or you know adults go through like don't let your kids do this because 
you know, what we were using as jokes and ways to be shocking and subversive is now a system that's called sexploitation. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but mm-hmm. you, you, you find these people find kids and then they befriend them and then they get an image like one you medicine and they use it to blackmail them into continually producing those things. And so there's so much more information out there that now the kids games market, which no longer is Timon and Pumbaa typing, but mm-hmm. games that kids want to play is separate from the adults games market and what i'm seeing now is like each like 10 year span is riding its own little ship into the future does that make sense like yeah no i get it like tower pcs and mmorpgs and mobas and all of those things are really kind of locked into that early 20s to early 30s generation Mm. and that's sort of who it panders to but younger kids are like they want things that work on console because their parents don't buy them computers, powerful yeah. computers at young ages anymore. They need things that work on tablets and on their cell phones because the number one gaming system a child of that age has is their parents' old phone. Because right. when their parent goes to get their upgrade, and they're just like, I have this like phone I spent all this money on, and they just hand it to their kid. And yeah. that's what they're playing on. Yeah, and that's that's the thing is that you know you, you think about what kind of market is playing you know like League of Legends. Uh, is coming out with like 10 new games and they're not coming out with like 10 new games because they like are being very creative they're coming out with 10 new games because kids don't want to play league of legends well yeah the kids don't want to play 10 league of legends but the other thing they're doing is think about this they're taking this what's it called auto chess game and they're moving it to mobile because mm-hmm. they now kids can play it mm-hmm. you know they're taking league of legends they're making a mobile version so now kids can play it. Yeah. You know? No, I, and I, I totally I get why they're they're doing it. And um, but that's the thing is that you know when we as adults like we clearly these games aren't marketed like towards us, and we have this derisive reaction to them when like perhaps we shouldn't. Well, the other reaction we tend to have is it isn't so much the games themselves. I'm like, I've always been fine with games existing for a younger demographic. It's the adults who have goals of becoming streamers and influencers within the gaming community lower themselves to a child's level so that they, someone in their mid to late 20s, is playing a children's game to entertain children and everything that goes along with that. But we've been looking at children's performers for a long time, you know, like the Wiggles and, you know, Blue's Clues. I mean, there's always adults who give programming to children, but in the past they've been limited by things like companies and business interests and contracts. These people are just like, I'm going to make content for kids, and there's no one telling them what to do. They're just doing it. Yeah, and I think that um, what you're saying is like the we have this innate revulsion to people lowering themselves to the levels of kids, even though there have always been people that make kids content. And um, I think that there's like kind of two sides to that. So you have like the Markiplier's, who I, I hate Markiplier. Like I, I think that he's an, a man child that screams at horror games. But then again. It's just not my thing. And I, I would never say that there's anything harmful about Markiplier. He's got sanitized content. It's it's cute for kids. And it, he's his demographic is like, you know, 12, 13, 14-year-olds that will eventually age out. But there will be a new brand of 12, 13, 14-year-olds that think he's, he's funny. Um, I have a problem when, like, PewDiePie says the N-word, you know? <laughs> Well, the thing for me about it is I think we have, as a society, learned a lot about, like, how to protect children. 
so there's this natural inclination to despise people who lower themselves in order to communicate directly with children because we as a society go adult men should not be trying to talk to children who are not related to them like the only people who do that have ulterior agendas Hmm. and so when it from an entertainment standpoint you have to realize like this person is becoming very popular children are talking about them at the dinner table children are going off into the rooms and watching videos about them and they're creating these parasocial relationships with these you know content creators and it just gives you this like natural like oh no no feeling yeah this is what if and so that 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 hatred that comes in from the adult community is like don't do that they're just trying to do a job. They're just trying to get views. That's what they've chosen for their career. It's what they want to do. And many people have done this in the past, but somehow having the companies and the broadcasting and the ads and everything behind them regulating them made it seem okay. And now it's just like, Ew. yeah, it's, just, it's an unsettling feeling. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think it's 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 fair to say that like, the Jeffrey Epstein of tomorrow will not recruit kids through ads for hundred dollar massages in his mansion. He's going to recruit kids through, you know, having the dankest headshot compilations. Well, I mean, <laughs> the army is starting streaming because it's illegal to like, you know, go to a, you know, kindergarten and be like, Hey kids, you want to go uh, kill some Yemenese kids? Um, so instead they just, you know, they stream Fortnite and they're like, yeah, this is fun, but you know what else is fun? Getting your legs and genitals blown off by an IED for a, uh, you know, Saudi oil baron or something. Well, that's the thing, right? And, it's, and creating, kids... it's creating an avenue and access point to children, right? And yeah. just because some people are doing it for the right reasons doesn't mean you're just, like, building the highway express directly into kids' minds. Yeah, but all the same, I mean, this is, like, the avenue that has no you know, oversight, you know, other than the Twitch stream t- uh, terms of service, which is like, don't get your dick out in front of these kids. Um, but yeah. other than that, like there's, you know, certainly no legislation against any of this, um, which is why they, you know, have the army doing stuff like this. Well, one thing that I'll say is just it, for the, for the children in my life, I don't personally have children, but I do have, you know, nieces and nephews and their parents can't even stomach the content you know they're not into games or gaming they're just professional adults and me neither i've i've taken it on myself to view all of the content that they both consume you know be it on a tv show or be it through these systems and some of the things like i've had to be like report back be like i don't think this is a good choice you know it's not always just because there's no curse words doesn't mean that it isn't you know behaviors being modeled or views being passed on you know people who stream these games they have to ramble for hours does that did that ever take you to those like weird algorithmic like you know youtube videos youtube videos from like soviet satellites i think i think that matt's uh nieces and nephews are uh too young for the algorithms but matt do you know about these algorithm videos that we're talking about I don't know I'm if they're really, too young. I don't think so. Though. I think they're made for like five year olds. Yeah, it's like it's a like, pregnant Elsa, Spider Man, Hulk, Joker, yeah. ice cream fun times. And it's like these weird computer generated action figure videos that don't have any plot. Yeah. But they, like, they're designed to hit algorithms. And it's actually fascinating. I was talking to a. Uh, they Bat- get like millions and millions of views. 
from yeah, I was talking, I was talking to can't speak. Well, no, way more than that. I was talking to Barbara about this yesterday, and it's interesting because the reason they were created is because five-year-olds, they just consume a ton of YouTube. They just sit there, and it's free, and their parents can give them it and put the age gate on, and they can be sure that there's not going to be like random swinging dicks. Which is what happened to me, and it's what happened to Matt, with very different results. Yeah. But uh, when I went to, uh, well, I was within the church, but <laughs> but um, you you can put the age gate on and then kind of just let them go wild. But kids are indistinguishable from bots because they'll view things, but they won't comment, they won't like, they won't subscribe. They'll just kind of like passively view things. And so, if you're a kids content channel and you're going to advertise, you can say with X amount of viewers, and they say how many of those are bots, and you can say, well, we can assume that most of them are just children and not bots. So then you can bot those videos, and you can say, oh, it's just kids watching them. Oh. I mean, the other thing, the point I like that you made is that um, video games have been sort of the poor man's babysitter for years now. Mm -hmm. You know, if they watch children because a child who's engaged in a video game or even just consuming content on YouTube or a streaming service has just like a longer shelf life of behaving. And, you know, just from the standpoint like I deal with things like classroom management and stuff engagement nowadays to keeping you know a room of children under control involves having activity and structure for every single moment mm -hmm. and adults especially in double working households which is more commonly the norm than it's ever been a video game is one of the few things that is like wall to wall mm -hmm. so this content you know, I know that the people who are making it, like some of them are trying to make art, some of them are trying to make money, some of them are trying to maximize profit. Like that, you know, the way games viewed, you know, they want people to come back or to log on every once in a while. There's all these influences. But do you think anyone sits in a boardroom at a game design company and goes, We're watching the children of America? Like, no, God, no. No one thinks about it, but that's what Unless it's like in the context doing. of Little St. James. Yeah, unless they're watching the children of America in an Epstein way. Yeah, so I don't think gaming companies need to realize, like, they, the popular games also kind of have a responsibility to, to realize that they're, like, babysitting a little bit. Well, kind of a lot. But, you know, the company won't ever, you know, if anything, they're going to do that so that they can monetize it. Well, yeah, they'll want to monetize it, but, but you know, and it's obviously 100% the parents' responsibility to, you know, monitor what their children do and consume. But if your game tends to be the number one calming thing for a child, like, or their most favorite thing to do, but they're going to go grab for it in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the, the, the main thing here is that, you know, for if you're going to have someone looking after your kids consider having a gay brother that can work as a third parent because I think that you're I think that they we really have a bad reputation for gay uncles in, in America because like <laughs> look at the wonders that you can do you can look over their content you can watch them while the, the parents go to uh, go to dinner like gay uncles can do all kinds of great things as long as they're not weirdos well yeah I mean it just entirely depends on like what type of nuclear family you want to build and like you know it takes a village so I'm just saying I that think. like you know if if you want to have a good household where you and your wife can go out to dinner someone can still look after the kids and you don't, you don't want them finding dicks on the internet gay brother or uh, find a third for your polycule that's that's cool with the whole uh, <laughs> the whole situation or you could just like hire a nanny 
But no one has like the money for that. that nowadays. Come on. Have you seen the economy yeah. nowadays? Millennials millennials cannot afford a nanny. It's it's gay sibling or third for the polycule or nothing. You know what we should do? We should create an app that's like Airbnb but for nannies and call it like Air Poppins. It's like, <laughs> nice. like pe- people pull out their phones and like the, an Uber driver who's also a Lyft driver who's also on Grubhub gets like an, an, a notification. They drop their foods off and they're at your house within 30 minutes. Yeah, and then they'll look kids. after your kids for a while. Yeah. That'd while be good. They run their, while they run their cam show because that is literally how much stuff they have to do to pay their bills. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I uh, I like this idea. Let's let's get on patenting it. This this is the thing is that everyone has good ideas like the uh, Eurovision uh, horror game, but you know you just got to make it a reality, which based on editing might might be in the future. Um, anyways, I, I do want to talk about Fortnite itself though because we kind of went on this streamer tangent with what happened with Fortnite because a lot of people like our age don't know. Um, so what happened recently is that Fortnite. So Fortnite, uh, for a long time, has been broken down into 10-week seasons. And so a season of Fortnite is, uh, like I said, 10 weeks. You'll, you can buy a pass for those 10 weeks. And then over the course of those 10 weeks, you can unlock achievements that'll unlock enough money that you can buy next month's pass. So as long as you're consistently playing, you should have enough money to keep buying passes, um, which a lot of kids that are just playing Fortnite will. So for parents, it's an attractive proposition to buy this one $10 pass if it's going to keep paying for itself over time. Um, and then for a lot of adults that don't have time to keep playing Fortnite, well, they should probably not be playing Fortnite. But anyways, um, but Fortnite has for a long time had this what they call a games as service model. So instead of it being just the game, there's like Fortnite concerts, like Dead Mouse did a concert in Fortnite. I have no idea how well those are doing. Like I have no idea if it's making any money or not. But uh, Fortnite made $2.4 billion off of a quarter of a million players, which on average is like, uh, I think it's, let me do, about like 10 bucks per person that they're spending on Fortnite, which is about the price of a season pass, which isn't that much, you know? If um, Blizzard had a quarter of a billion concurrent subscribers for World of Warcraft, they'd all be spending $15 a month, you know? And so we'd have a way higher annual cost. Uh, so it's not that it's like it's not actually that expensive of a hobby, um, and they update it. Not only do they have these once every ten weeks seasonal updates, but they also have every week like micro updates where they'll change, rebalance the game, add new things, and they always have new kind of modes. There was that mode where you get to play as Thanos with the Infinity Gauntlet, then the mode where you get to play as Batman. Um, there's constantly new content for Fortnite, and uh, recently. They had something, they did something which was pretty bold. They, for season 10, they had this black hole in the sky that was expanding over the course of the, the, the 10 weeks. And then at the end, everyone was wondering what's going to happen with this black hole. A rocket ship went off and the whole world got sucked into the black hole. And then for two days, if you tried to log into Fortnite, it was nothing but the black hole. There was no menu, no nothing. And then after those two days, boom, Fortnite chapter two. New map, they took out like, 40 guns, they added boats, they added swimming, you can now fish for loot, they added a ton of new mechanics, and it's essentially revamping of the game. So that's... It's kind, hmm? it's kind of interesting how, like, since their audience is more like the younger crowd and children, like, adult 
gamers would be like, tell me what's happening, give me the patch notes, explain yourself immediately. Mm-hmm. And the, the kids are just like, ooh, a black hole, I'm in awe. Like, you know, it's kind of a cool way to transfer from one version to the next. In, you know that we don't really see in the older games. Yeah, there's a few there's a few parts of this that I, I kind of want to get into. The first is that with the new version, they didn't release notes on what was in it. So it's been up to the people to find the secrets. It's been up to them to find what new guns are in, what new mechanics are in. Like, imagine you've been playing Fortnite for like two years and you drop in new map. There's no information online about where things are on this new map. You find a fishing pole. What the fuck does the fishing pole do? Oh, if I use it in the water, I can fish up loot. This is an entirely new mechanic. No one explained this to me. It just happened. And that's awesome. That is pretty cool. I do like the force, like, I can't think of any game, a multiplayer game, that would force its players to have, take like a tolerance break. Mm-hmm. Everyone that's <clears throat> like, if it's down for more than 30 minutes, the community goes apeshit. So this oh, is pretty- do you rem- Oh, sorry, Do you remember when Final Fantasy MMOs forced tolerance breaks and like had limitations on their players' ability to binge it, and like their community freaked out? Oh yeah, yeah, I do. FF11, right? Yeah. God, that game was such a nightmare. <laughs> God, no, I remember that now. Yeah, you had you could only play for a certain number of hours before you like didn't get any XP anymore, right? Yeah. That's a great way to. And then World of Warcraft was like, you can just play it forever. And as a matter of fact, we yep. prefer that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, the thing is, is that, you know, speaking of World of Warcraft and Final Fantasy, I'm actually kind of enthralled by this Fortnite decision to do uh, new content this way. Because this is a problem that shooters, sorry, not shooters, games in general, multiplayer games have been dealing with forever. How do you introduce new content without making the game completely inaccessible to new players? So... Uh, I will say this with complete confidence. If you want to get into League of Legends right now, good fucking luck. There's like, there's how many heroes in League of Legends? Yeah, I tried there's getting 140 in. heroes in League of Legends, and they get more complicated as time goes on. And then there's a lot of information you have to find because what League has done in order to stop their roster from ballooning to ridiculous sizes is they take the least played champions and they remake them entirely. Yeah, and but so, the, what I'm saying is that, like, good fucking luck if you're a new player and you don't even have the basic fundamentals of the game, you know? Yeah, I, uh, yeah. I tried to get into it, like, only, like, three years after it had been out. And, you know, I, like, I picked up the uh, the pirate character because he was on sale. And yeah, they, you know, they start you out with, like, you know, 500 uh, gold doubloons. And Wait, which, pi- which pirate character? Because there's Gangplank. Uh, there's Gangplank. Pirate, but... And then there's okay. Misfortune, yeah. Yeah, so I played as him, and I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, so I would just go and go do whatever. The team would lose it and just be like, why are you feeding? Why are you, why are you taking mid? You're, you're, you're down. I didn't know what I was doing, so I was just like, you know, I just pretended to be a pirate. I'd just be like, yar, pirate, do as he please. <laughs> Prepare your poop deck for boarding. Uh, and just, you know, walk around, eat citrus. Yep. That was one of his moves. Um, I take this but, but yeah, like, just how, you know, if you not... And I wasn't even in, like, a ranked match. I was just like, or I don't even know. Okay, so one of the things you need to learn is there's no such thing as a casual game of League of Legends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, like, if you're not... Not, even, not even their casual game on ARAM, people still get so mad oh, so many heated I, gaming moments yeah if you don't oh yeah plenty of heated gaming moments if you yeah take, if you're not like if you don't know the meta which changes every week 
you're you're gonna get at least one or two N words. <laughs> yeah. See, I take the Sands of Time approach to League of Legends. I played the same character since season one because her name's Morgana, and she has a move that's a spell shield, and it just stops all crowd control. And no matter what you do, besides removing that ability from the game, it's she only, will yeah. always be viable because removing all crowd control is never not good. Yeah. So and I since season, since season one to this season, she's still good. But so it's the only character. in college, I used to play like an absurd amount of League of Legends, and I was always playing jungle. I tried. I played support for a long time. I played jungle. I played all the roles. I was a really good top laner. Um, I'm a very aggressive. Well, what's the difference? I, I, can, I can break it down, but we don't have time for that. Like okay. I can tell you. Yeah, the difference, I guess but, I don't care that much. <clears throat> yeah, um, but I I was really into League of Legends, and I can tell you when I stopped playing. It's when they. This is years and years ago, probably like seven years ago. They changed the way that jungle works, and they changed the number of items you get in the game. And I at that point had already had my build order down. I knew everything that I wanted to do, and I was like, you know what? I don't feel like learning this new game. Oh, yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah, that's, that's the thing, is that... But now, if I wanted to get back into it, it would be fucking impossible. And it's like, I've had the same experience with World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft, when it wants to introduce new content, it introduces a new expansion. And that new expansion will have all new stuff, and everyone will kind of be at like a tabula rasa, blank slate, okay, we're all going to the new expansion together. Except... The big difference is, is that people that have been playing for a really long time will have a significant advantage through their experience. I remember um, when uh, Warlords of Draenor came out, I tried to play it uh, with uh, Matt over here, and it was like, there were just so many mechanics that had been introduced in previous expansions, that I was like, wait, what's this do? And Matt would be like, oh, don't worry about it, it's going to be worthless in like two weeks when the next expansion drops. And I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck is going on. Like... It's really confusing, and the thing that is, like, double bad about it... So, right now, WoW has a really bad problem with having its content PTR tested and played through by professional rating teams. And these teams will get access to the raid, and they're kind of Blizzard's playtesters for the highest level of content and tuning content. But then the raid will drop, and they'll race to kill the boss on the hardest difficulty first. There's this always this world-first race. It's so mm-hmm. publicized, and everyone freaks out. But like, how are you supposed to compete at all with someone who's literally been doing 300 pulls on the public test realm? They have the boss down, muscle memory, pat, everything, and they have exclusive access. You know, it's just so silly yeah. that you have to deal with. So you've got, first of all, you've got the people who've been playing the game forever, learning the ropes as they change and move, and they're doing moderately well. You have the people who have complete access to the game before it's even released, who are obliterating everyone, and then you've got new players who are just like, the amount of information I have to deal with is... Is it's just too much. League of Legends is is very bloated for this reason because you you have to have some idea of the other abilities that your opponents can use. <laughs> well, yeah, and right? right. So this is this is the kind of the point I was trying to make, which is that in League of Legends, when they did that big jungle change, they changed the jungle a lot. But playing a mid laner was like largely the same. And so I was at a huge disadvantage. I would have to learn a ton of new stuff, and I just didn't want to do that because everyone else was at the same relatives. Like, there was a couple new items you had to learn, but, you know, everyone was at basically the same skill level except for that specific niche role that I played. And it's like, but with Fortnite, everyone's at the same kind of tabula rasa. There was no PTR for Chapter 2. 
There was no... Like, the only skills that transfer over are the gameplay skills, which naturally should transfer over, like your ability to build your fort and shoot your gun. And I I think that's a great way to do content wipes and progression, is that, I mean, let's just say that Fortnite had kept going, because like I said, they deleted a ton of the guns and, and, and the map is new, like they don't have the old map anymore. Like, if they just kept going with the old map and just kept adding guns, by year four, we'd have 400 guns in the game, 16 mechs. No one would know what the fuck is going on. But by scaling back the content, like they make it so that it's accessible. Like now, if you're a new player, you can get into Fortnite and you'd be at pretty much a similar level to a lot of the other people that are playing. You know, a really smart thing for them to do, and I wonder if they're already doing this, is to slate this new release of Fortnite 2 with like, hey kids, invite your friends. And, you know, because you've got everyone in a little middle school group playing the game and you've got the one kid who hasn't had the phone or the tablet since fourth grade because their mom just let them just get one and now you can be like Fortnite's all new like come on in you know that's what i would do mm-hmm. free money free money yeah and i think that i think that that i i mean i don't i'm not super inundated but i'd be surprised if they don't have an invite a friend system yeah <laughs> i i just think that um you know, for all the derisive comments that we can have about, like, you know, capitalism and commercializing to its kids, like, the more I look into Fortnite, like, the less negative things I have to say about it. Because, like I said, the Battle Pass, which is, like, every season, 10 bucks. But the, the cost of getting a Battle Pass is 950 Fortnite bucks or whatever it is, which is nine, 950 in real life. And then if you want to buy the next pass, it's, you can earn 1,600 Fortnite bucks by playing through the Battle Pass's uh, achievements, which like, frankly, aren't that hard to get. And so, like, if you're a constant player, you can keep buying the stuff in Fortnite for for free. And I'm like, that's better than most free-to-play, even paid MMOs. I mean, you play Call of Duty, you can't earn the map packs, you know? It's it's gonna be 50 bucks no matter what. Gotta earn the map packs. Their business model is, I mean, obviously successful. They're making just money hand over fist. I mean, the main reason I don't play Fortnite is because I spend all day with children of that age, and I'm not spending all night with them, too. There's no way. <laughs> like, I can't. And I've had, like, I've, I get asked on maybe a weekly basis, do you play Fortnite? Is it Fortnite? I'm like, no. No, I do not. I just... And that's just part of it. You know, maybe we have our own separate tribes. It, it's it's a little frustrating to see, you know, a demographic that doesn't really target you, you know, flourish and grow and explode and all the people in it are excited about it. And you're kind of just sitting over there with, like, your world and it's sort of, like, rotting and it's forgotten. But, you know, I think that's the way the world works. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's not like there's not a plethora of games out there that appeal to adults, but... You know, it's like everything that Fortnite touches now is just like adults hate it because I think we're a very insular community. Like gamers are very dis, dis, distasteful of, of new people appealing to new audiences. Well, it's because of our uh, skull shape. It's, you know, can't, <laughs> not capable of uh, the same level of intelligence and empathy as a regular, you know, a, a real human. As a real human, yeah. But it's like <laughs> people hate the Epic Game Store. Because it's not Steam, and we talked about this on a, a previous episode, which I, you know, we talked about Epic versus Steam. But, you know, as Jesse mentioned on that episode, one of the reasons people hate Epic Game Store is because, well, they make Fortnite. And I just think it's, it's silly. I mean, if you're just breaking down how Fortnite manages its content and how it creates new things, I think Fortnite is, like, 
I wish I was a kid nowadays getting into gaming because games are so much more complex and interesting than they were when I was, you know, playing Counter-Strike custom maps. I don't know. I mean, we did grow up in the generation where Rare was making some of their greatest hits of all time. That's true. Dude, so, I don't I'm, fucking... I hate people that jerk off to GoldenEye so bad. Like, it's like, dude... Not GoldenEye. I mean, like, Banjo-Kazooie. I mean, yeah, you know the time. Of, and then, stuff, like, those... Those yeah, types of games that meet Donkey Kong Country. Matt, we all know that you have a Spyro the Dragon plushie that you snuggle with every night as okay. you go to sleep. Now, listen, I may or may not have bought the Spyro Reignited Trilogy and 100%ed all three of them. That is neither here nor there. <laughs> but what I'm saying is... I may or may not have a massive $1,000 Spyro the Dragon Yakuza tattoo on my back. <laughs> <laughs> the... the the revival of games after the 1980 game crash was pretty great, and I feel that we're kind of sort of trailing our way back to a little bit of an overbloated system with early access and microtransactions and loot boxes, and I, I feel like there's a lot of negatives floating around with the positives, and so, you know, a simpler time, we all remember it, but I mean, I went back and replayed Spyro last year. It's still, it's amazing. The writing is hilarious. Yeah, so to on the flip side of this whole coin, we do have to talk about the negatives of Fortnite, which is that it has killed, like, so many other games. Like, um, like yeah, PUBG and Fortnite, and then there's a million other... Good, good, fuck PUBG. Yeah. They didn't update it ever. Uh, it looked like shit. It was just... Um, PUBG? PUBG, they update all the time. You're thinking of DayZ. What's the difference? DayZ is the zombie one. Oh. Anyways... There's um, PUBG, Daisy. What's that other one that just came out? There's a billion was, of them. They're all just the same the, asset the flip. Ro- the Battle Royale thing. And didn't Fortnite like stumble into Battle Royale? Like, wasn't it designed Yeah, so for ba- Fortnite was originally, and it still exists, it's called Fortnite Save the World, was originally like a zombie tower defense game that they created a Battle Royale mode for when PUBG was getting popular because they were like, I don't know, here we go. I believe it sold 60 copies. Yeah. Well, no, I actually, I actually have it. Like they sent it to me back when they were small. And I'm sure it was it. fun, but yeah. you know, it certainly did not do anything spectacular. It just, uh, you know, they rebranded it as a, you know, battle royale game, and then they just added this clunky, um, you know, magic alchemy of spawning logs and stones and building yeah. structures. But I think that the the point we're making is that. The gamers of yesteryear, uh, the N64 era, we can think of so many games that we played. Spyro the Dragon, Banjo-Kazooie, Crash Bandicoot, uh, Star Fox, uh, Super Mario 64, all GoldenEye, all these games across all these different genres. And you can get even more specific. I know a lot of people that played uh, Ogre Battles, etc., that really loved that generation. And kids today play Minecraft and Fortnite. Like, those are the two games. Well... The thing that's different between games back then, like games were finished, released, and they were in a little box at your your store, and you put them in, and they never changed. Well, right, now, exactly. That's what I'm saying is that like the market has changed. Like, so when Fortnite came out, it, I mean, it was the same thing that happened with League of Legends like a decade before, right? Everyone was like MOBAs, and then everyone made a MOBA. And it was the company that took the most risks and pushed the hardest and did the most marketing that ended up being the, the king on top. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened with Battle Royale. And I think companies have begun to sort of look at genres 
as extremely important indicators of where the market's going. And so I, I feel like a lot of game developers are kind of sitting on their hands waiting for the next big genre to explode. Yeah, but that's the thing is that I don't think that um, – I think that's a bad way to, for companies to be looking at it. And I understand why they're doing it, but like I think it's always the trailblazer that makes the new, the new genre explode. I mean PUBG made so much I don't money. Think, I, I mean PUBG made a lot of money, but Fortnite ended up being on top and they're continuing to make money. And – you know, League was not the first MOBA, but now League of Legends is the top MOBA. And the auto chess thing isn't that the most recent one? Like everyone was that's the new to that's the new the thing. Chess game. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that um, whatever the next genre is 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 still up in the air. But I will say that it's it's very clear that with these games of service models, it does kill new titles like. People are just can still be, keep playing Fortnite forever, which is nice for parents. It's nice for the wallets of parents. But as gamers, we like a diverse industry. And I will say that like this this games as service model is destroying indie titles' abilities to compete because like you know regardless of the fact that everyone's playing Fortnite, if you're trying to make a new battle royale, you better have updates every week to even be able to compete with Fortnite. And an indie studio can't afford that. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not possible. I mean, it kind of, it kind of just burns down each of these genres to a specific game, and then th- if that game can't maintain, you know, freshness and interest, it, it just sours. I mean, yeah. I think we're seeing that in MMO world, right? I mean, the MMO game was 2004 through 2010 was the battle, and now it's like. Has a new MMO been released in however long? Mm-hmm. So everyone just looks to WoW to you know dazzle them, and WoW has no reason to. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm gonna be picking up Kingdom Under Fire too when it comes out soon. Uh, they sent me uh, asking me if I want to review that, and I've been waiting for that for seven years. So it's gonna be oh I can't say anything about it because it hasn't come out yet. Anyways, um, yeah, I think that. Overall, our conclusion for this discussion is that, like, it's not that, like, Minecraft good, Fortnite bad. It's not that, you know, the games that I played are so much empirically better. I think that if you look at Fortnite as a product, like, it's, it's pretty clear that it's a good product that they're selling. The, the main concern that we have is with the, the industry becoming so tailored towards kids, you know, it's this inundated, kind of bloated mess but it's also tailored specifically towards kids and you know when you see that funding they stop making so many products for adults and i don't know but i think that uh if you're just looking at fortnite as as a product it's i'm I'm impressed with what they do with it yeah i think i mean you know kids do change a lot of aspects of games you know it makes us more wary about the content creators it makes us wonder how much time they're spending on them and it takes focus away because we don't want to mix those worlds you know most adult gamers don't want to be playing with kids just as a, just a normal aspect of things um, but the other part about it is communities become a big part of the games too I mean if kids decide to make a game their game that game belongs to them you know yeah. Like it just it just does, you know. Maybe Fortnite, when it was being developed, was you know not aimed at children. But if all the tweens and kids all just jump on that one, that's where it's going to go. Yeah, this is a discussion that uh, I think would be great to have on another podcast of who owns 
you know, really owns the title. And this is, um, I, I wish we had talked about this last week when we talked about uh, Blizzard, which, by the way, has just continued to explode. It's been an ongoing story that I wish we could have time to talk about. But um, we need to wrap it up here because we got to talk to uh, Andre from uh, Bluebird Team here pretty quick. But, uh, yeah, so I think that next week we'll probably be able to tackle the topic of ownership of uh, the product. You know, is it the fans or the creators that really uh, own the franchise or is it the content creators? And I think that'll be a good discussion for next week. So I'm going to go ahead and say we're going to leave it at that. And um, we'll be back in a minute after this musical interlude with our interview with the uh, lead writer of Bloober Team. Cut. Okay, and we're back. Hey, Andre, how are you doing today? I'm fine, a bit punch drunk, but let's just forge ahead and hope for the best. You were punch drunk. Did you? Were you in a boxing match today? <laughs> I had a working Saturday, so. Ah, yes, it's the yeah, uh, the what is the word I'm looking for? The fabled hours of the video game industry, where uh, you definitely yeah. get to sleep twelve hours a night. And uh, you never have any crunch times. Yeah, and especially for writers, our crunch time like often comes very early in production because we need to figure a lot of stuff out uh, like from the get-go. So, yeah. Yeah, so you are the, the head writer for Bloober Team. Um, and so this is kind of interesting because we previously talked to uh, uh, Barbara Kachuk, who is the uh, narrative designer which means that she kind of takes your stories and turns them into like game right like she takes it and figures how do i how do i take this story and piece it down into like actual gameplay well it's not always as structured as you make it sound uh but yeah basically i mean my job you know my job isn't limited to just writing this stuff i also like I have to be in, you know, strict cooperation with all the designers and, and artists to kind of make sure, uh, you know, this stuff gets transferred to the screens correctly and, uh, you know, to take their, uh, to take all their feedback into consideration. Yeah, so a lot of people that are, like, looking at getting into the industry that want to be a writer, because, like, the idea of, like, video game story writer is a lot of people's dream job and they don't really think about the fact that once you write it it's not like set in stone it's not like the rest of the company no. bends to your will to make your vision come to life you know it's this more if of a only. process yeah <laughs> if only they understood my brilliant vision <laughs> yeah i mean uh it, it's it's weird really like the job of a video game writer it's it's sort of based on very like weird conflict because in my mind like the job of a the, the, basically the job of a writer is usually a very solitary one you know like a, if you're a novelist or whatever even a screenwriter for movies you tend to just write this stuff by yourself like to, uh, and at a certain point it's just kind of out of your hands but in video games it's much much more collaborative than mm -hmm. that and like when the script is done, 
I'd say my work is only about halfway done. There's still a lot of, you know, coordinating and re- rewriting to do usually. Well, and I know that like a lot of times the mechanical evolution of a game will uh, influence how the story needs to be written. Like from what I understand, the first version of the Blair Witch game didn't like have a dog in it. Mm, yeah, I'm probably not the best person to to actually discuss in depth. Uh, the production on Bla- of Blair Witch because that's actually the one project I had the least to do with. Mm. Like, I didn't write the original script. Another writer did. Uh, I basically worked on Blair Witch for about a month. I did one rewrite and some additional dialogue. And I've also hel- helped out with the VO recording. Yeah. That's also kind of in my job description. But, yeah, so Blair Witch is the one project I'm really not, you know. Yeah, we probably shouldn't talk too much about it anyways, or else the Lionsgate police will come knock down my door and <laughs> take me out back and shoot me. If Actually, when I mentioned that uh, Blair Witch 2 Book of Shadows existed, they made me cut off my thumbs, and I thought that was, like, pretty intense. Oh. Getting attacked by the Lionsots grouping. The Lionsots grouping. <laughs> but, yeah. No, that's reasonable. Yeah, no, it's... um. They, they don't want anyone to remember that Book of Shadows exists. But yeah, you did... So, like, you, let's just go back to Layers of Fear, then. The original Layers of Fear game. Uh, you did work on that one, correct? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but, like, you know, when you're writing the story of Layers of Fear, there probably wasn't the plan for the DLC that came after. the. What was the DLC for that called? Inheritance. Inheritance, right. I was thinking um, the Josephine DLC, but the Josephine DLC is the Amnesia DLC, where you also uh, yeah. play as a lady. But, um, yeah, d- diving deep into the, the nerd here. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're first writing the Layers of Fear story, you don't have this idea that, like, there's going to be this Inheritance DLC that ex- explains it. But you have to then, because you are making DLC, kind of, okay, where do I take the story from here? So... You know, give us just a little bit of uh, of your thought process when when writing a story, and kind of take us through the the changes that'll occur as the game goes along. Well, I mean, every project is different to a large extent, and Layers of Fear One was kind of well. First off, it was my you know my first project for Bluebird, and I actually joined the team once. Uh, they were pretty far into production on layers. Uh, they, they, like the the early builds were actually up and running when I when I joined them, and they had a, so there was kind of a they, they they sort of knew where they wanted the story to go. They were just having trouble kind of putting it into words and into you know. So I basically came on and. Uh, and I just started writing, and they liked what they saw. And, you know, I basically wrote the first player's game in, like, two, maybe three weeks. Mm. Well, that's um, kind of surprising, because I think many would consider the, the first player's game to be one of the most kind of narratively mm-hmm. complex uh, that you guys... Well, of, that are many, many indie horror games. Uh, layers oh. kind of stands out. Sure. I mean, there, there, there was definitely, you know... Uh, there was definitely quite a lot of thought put into the whole concept, and I've actually, you know, once I came on, I discussed it at length with the rest of the team, and um, that's that's kind of 
are, are uh, an inherent part of our process is like we do a lot of brainstorming before you know I even start jotting down the first words of the script. So we so so that we know like what kind of themes you know what kind of issues we wanna we wanna uh, focus on, and then to a certain degree you know writing the actual script just becomes kind of a formality. Mm-hmm. So because like you know uh, the idea of like a well designed game is so yeah. heavily based on the mechanics, what what benefit do the game designers have from having the full script in front of them? So that, you know, how does it help them focus? How does it help them hit these storytelling beats? Like, what is that synergy between the script and the mechanics look like when it's, when it's functioning best? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, <laughs> the benefit to the designers and especially with us for the art team uh, would be, would probably be uh, so that they can tell me what they like or what they don't like. And they, you know, and then we kind of go back and forth. You know, I, I like I tell them why I, I think we should handle this plot point that way or this way. And they tell me, well, you know, we can't really do this. Or, you know, they have some specific kind of requests that sort of match their sensibilities more. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it's, like I said before, it's a very collaborative effort. Yeah, so... You know, one of the interesting things about games, and especially writing for games and the storytelling of games, is very different than other mediums. Because, you know, with a film, it's you you start the film, you go through the film, film ends. It's going to be the same film every time, you know? Um, With games, the, the player has to interact with the game in order for the story to be told. And as a result, this will lead to moments that you plan on hitting a certain way not hitting because they were looking in a different direction or something (laughs) yeah exactly or they might go through the game in a different way so uh when we talk about marrying uh story and gameplay it's 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 more difficult because the the player is in a way creating their story as they play it yes right so when you're writing the story how do you make it compelling enough that players will want to keep diving into it, but also make sure that if they miss a certain piece of it, they won't be completely lost. Well, that's always the tricky part. And um, we do, at Bluebird, we do a lot of testing that when, you know, in, when, when we focus specifically on, you know, we just invite some people over, sit with them and see how, you know, just how they play, what they do, where do they look, where they look at a, at specific points in the game, mm-hmm. how much of the story do they see, how much did they miss, um, and that's always excruciating because oftentimes, you know, when the game is still at a fairly early stage, people just aren't gonna get much out of it, and they frequently miss a lot of the cool stuff that we put into it. But then again, it's that's why it's so helpful and necessary. Yeah. Because we we get to see ah okay now we we have to you know make this clearer we have to you know make sure they hit that beat and whatnot. Yeah, and that's the kind of interesting because you know you imagine someone writing uh, their first book or whatever, and um, 
you know, they might have their mom reading it, they might have their friends reading it, they might have like a small writing group, but they don't have, you know, this this captive audience of like QA testers to be like, oh, this is like, I miss this beat, I miss this story element, you need to better explain that. So, uh, you know, what percentage of the script do you think has changed by end of production versus the beginning? Mm, depends on the project, but it's not uncommon for it to be 100%. <laughs> like, really. Uh, specifically, for example, uh, for Observer, I think we errored multiple drafts. And if you would compare the very first one and the final one, very little would you know remain. Yeah, actually, I, I was kind of holding off on bringing up Observer because I had like so many questions about it, but I kind of wanted to get your general thought process before I moved into that. But since mm -hmm. you uh, brought it up, I figured this is this would be a good chance to talk about it. So Observer is a game that had a really, really strong, like fundamental core basic concept, which is this. When I first heard about it at E3, like 2014 or 15, I can't even remember which one, but it was they were going for this dystopian uh, cyberpunk, but with like a Polish sense, quote, quote, is what yeah. they were calling it, which is like dark and depressing and nothing is happy. And there's like an <laughs> organ farm for made of pigs. But it had this like strong kind of base idea that then splintered off into a billion different concepts because of the individual memories of each person in the game um, and the fact that you are like a mind hacker. Um, so when, you, when you're writing Observer, do you write the main story as one story and then each individual story as their own stories? How does that all work? Starting, start, let's start off at the beginning. Like Observer was this bizarre and wonderful project for me specifically because uh, I remember right after Layers was written, uh, I was basically asked, the, the, the studio was thinking about, you know, what to do next. And I was asked to provide, you know, some, to pitch some projects. And I remember I, I, I gave them two pitches and uh, Observer was one of them. Mm -hmm. So, like, in the, in the span of, like, four months, I was actually starting to work on a project of my own kind of conception. Uh, so that was just immensely <laughs> unbelievable to mm -hmm. me. But having said that, the, the still like the, the the brainstorming and just high level conceptualizing that went into like early stages uh, of development for Observer were uh, just immense. And the project actually changed quite a lot. Uh, during the early stages and the well to answer your question specifically uh, a lot of the stuff that you know that you would see for example in the dream eater sections the you know people's memories mm -hmm. and all the crazy visuals that you uh, you know uh, that's all uh, well that's mostly uh, you know uh, that 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 credit goes mostly to our our team mm -hmm. uh, because they have immense. Just you know, I can I can come up with a concept, you know, with a backstory for a character, with a general concept for you know what what we what we learn by delving into their minds, and you know, I have, of course, I 
I, I imagine it in one way or another, and I can jot it down, but what they then, you know, with their, like, awesome, <laughs> just very visual, uh, you know, sensibilities, uh, what they brought to it, which is kind of was mind-blowing even to me, they, like, expanded it immensely. Mm-hmm. But do you write each of the characters' stories as their own story? Or is it like you're writing a book and those stories would be like chapters within the book? Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, well, I'm sure in a, in a you know, more linear form, they, they, they might as well have been chapters. They, of course, uh, well, yeah, I did. I mean, all the characters had written backstories but the like the the focal point was that those backstories were, were would kind of intercept and serve the, the the main plot. Yeah, let me let me kind of rephrase a bit here. So, like when you ha- you had the character that was like the uh, the altered guy, you know, the werewolf, the guy that thought he was a werewolf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, did he come about? Because it's like, oh, we need a character to explain this part of the world. Let's make this backstory. Or was it like a book where you have a number of characters you already have ideas from, and then they flesh it out from there? Like, do do the stories spawn from gameplay necessity? Like, we need a level that looks like this. Or do they spawn from, we have this idea for the world, let's make these levels? No, it was, uh, I would say, the the latter more so. Uh, I'd say they didn't... They they definitely uh, weren't created from uh, from from a like a gameplay necessity. They they were created for uh, from a plot necessity. Mm-hmm. I, I basically needed a character like with this particular character, the let's you know quote unquote werewolf guy. Uh, I just needed uh, I did, I needed a character that would serve this particular uh, role in the story. The kind of tool uh mm-hmm. you know and the kind of fake out antagonist uh for the first and part of partly the second act of the game right so and that then i move on to like okay how do i make him interesting and how how do i make him you know fit this weird world that we've created mm-hmm. yeah and i i would definitely say that you know comparing the plots of Observer to say like Layers of Fear Two are very different because Layers of Fear Two or the Layers of Fear games, as more surreal games, are more about telling stories through like little bits of inference and metaphor. Whereas Layers uh, Observer was a more traditional detective story, where it's you find bits of clues that lead you towards uh, certain conclusions. Um, mm-hmm. And as you, the writer of this story, which is you know you have an interesting position here. Did you kind of become the position of authority for other people in the company to come to when they're asking, well, what's happening here? What are we supposed to be doing here? Like, did it put you being the, the kind of the genesis of the world? Did you find yourself uh, in, in a place where people were coming to you for clarification on things that you might not have thought of? Oh, yeah, that, that definitely happens. I mean, you always, I mean, Observer was especially was, a uh, very ambitious project for us at the stage we were in back back then. Perhaps overly ambitious, I would I would say. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still kind of, and I I mean I can tell you that 
by the end of it was by the end of the development we were all very kind of worn out and we weren't we were honestly not sure anymore if we you know if we haven't bitten off more than we could, could mm-hmm. chew uh we were honest like i mean well speaking for myself i i honestly like a month before release i i just i hated my life and i i honestly didn't know if if we could make this work but it turned out you know i i, I was basically it turned out i was more focused on the stuff that you know uh, the the stuff that we you know didn't manage to pull mm-hmm. off or, or 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 kind of the the concept of the game that i had in my head but without actually realizing that what we've done was still you know that's pretty cool yeah no and i i uh, i think so that i've said this to uh, a few of my other game designer friends before is that all of you people on that end of the spectrum, you know that side of the the, the release wall, your developer side. I you, thought you meant like Polish people. No, not not that side of the Soviet bloc. No, um, uh, this side, <laughs> like that side of the developer um, spread, is like the the developer separation between consumer and developer is that you guys all see uh, like everything that you couldn't fit in. You you see the bugs that we don't see. You see like the like you're the one like oh man, I hope they don't. Notice that that doorway at one point led to a level that we could never finish, but the rest of us just see like a closed door, you know? Yeah. So, um, there was a, another question. Fuck, I had about... Obs- oh, right, right. Okay, sorry. So when uh, you, you guys kind of, in the process of creating this game, conscribed Rutger Hauer to be uh, the voice actor for uh, Observer, are there any kind of like funny or interesting stories about getting him on board and... How did how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was pretty wild. Uh, I remember, like, uh, I remember one of our one of our producers kind of. Uh, that we, we we were um, we were working for this. We were working with this agency that you know had like uh, a, let's say a catalog of actors that they you know they could put us in in touch with and um and just one of our producers just saw Rutger Hauer there and he was like well I mean shit why not why not him but maybe maybe you know he (laughs) seems to fit the bill and and we were like I, I was just flabbergasted at first because I just you know I would never consider uh you know, <laughs> like a like a big name actor like him for for the part, but uh, and so like I, I you know when I first heard about it, I was like, yeah, cool, let's let's try him, let's try it, let's you know let's send him a script and see if it you know catches his fancy. And like two or three months later, I I, I heard that yeah, he actually he wants to do it. <laughs> so uh, and, and and like. A month later, still he he just one day he just showed up in Krakow, and uh, and I got to meet him and I got to work with him for like two weeks. So that was uh, yeah, that was a, definitely a career highlight for me. Are there any? Uh, what's it like working with? What was it like working with him? Do you have any fun stories? Uh yeah, probably not 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 all of them I can kind of 
get into. Not work appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, he was. I, I, I'll tell you this: like, he was an artist in every sense of the word. Like, yeah. he was incredibly like committed. He didn't do because I know you know. I, I I know that you know not everyone like fell in love with what he did for for Dan, but I have heard like certain voices certain voices that claim that you know oh he kind of phoned in his performance and that couldn't be farther from the truth because he was like uh, we actually like the 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 two weeks we've spent with him you know recording it was actually like. It was always the first half of each day we would spend going through the script because he wanted to make sure that he, you know, got each line like he completely understood what was going on, what the character was, you know, what what what, what the mo- motivation was, mm-hmm. uh, and he actually uh, he made quite a few, you know, uh, kind of. Uh, we've actually, you know, changed a number of lines to kind of just 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 so Rodger could kind of get into it more. Mm-hmm. You know, like at a certain point, and it's also I, I I will say, which you know, on the one hand, you 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 can say that you know it, 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 it's sort of frustrating for a writer when you know his script uh, goes goes through changes, but. Then again, when Rutger Hauer tells me like, "Nah, Dan wouldn't say that. He'd go like this," <laughs> like that's that's immensely cool. Yeah, that is pretty. It's it's a it's a it's a give and take. Yeah. Um, I, I just uh, you know, it's kind of interesting when you when you mention that the oh, it sounds like he was phoning it in. It's it must be very difficult for an actor to do voice acting lines because. It's the same issue that we were talking about before, which is that you know you're writing a thing and you're expecting it to have a certain emotional impact, but it's up to really the player to engage it at a certain way to have that emotional impact. With a voice actor, you have another layer of that that you know the the voice actor can deliver a line with a level of intensity that the player wasn't feeling, and then it feels overblown, or they could undersell a point, and then the player goes, "Well, but that really scared me," and it's like. It's just another layer, which is why a lot of horror games tend to go with the voiceless protagonist. This is kind of more of a, yeah, a think piece I was saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. Uh, I, I will say that, and still, you have to remember that, you know, Radger, when he worked with us, he was, uh, you know, this huge, you know, established, like, movie star with this, with this huge, you know, body of work. Uh, but he was also, uh, you know, he was over 70 when he worked with us already, and he he had never done a video game previously. Mm-hmm. So this was a very new experience for him as well. And, uh, well, with him, he was always, like, like, he was fearless when it came, well, like, as long as he understood the character and what was going on in any given scene, like, he, he gave it, you know, he gave it his all. Uh, the oh, one yeah. Thing- I, I'm not saying that he phoned it in at all. I'm just saying no, that no, no. that's uh, probably sure. one of the reasons why there's this misinterpretation of the, was the actor trying at this point versus not is because, uh, yeah, yeah the, the player could have a different 
emotional range than the yeah character does. And it is, you know, it is a, it is a, a a very kind of unique performance. It is it's a unique character. But I will say that the the only times we've had we had you know kind of trouble like getting getting a, a like the exact right performance that we wanted was the gamey stuff. Like he he kind of like. I remember one day when he when we gave him just like a page of these random kind of you know just random sentences without much context that we just needed to have for the purpose you know just purely mechanical like <laughs> because we we thought we might need them at at certain points and that one he was just like you just want me to read this <laughs> and it, it, <laughs> he just uh it wasn't you know because it, i like i said it was a it was a new medium to him at mm-hmm. the point at and you and you're talking about moments like gameplay moments like where you're like doors locked yeah exactly like huh what was that you know like just yeah exactly those like little moments you need a voice record the less glamorous yeah. moments of a game yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, what else? Shit, there was uh, another question I had. Sorry, I have, a, I, I have a bit of a cold right now. and my, my brain is a little fried, so it's like I'll forget questions halfway through uh, formulating them. Um, do either of you guys have questions real quick, Matt or Jesse? What's your favorite dinosaur? Hmm, it's a tough one. It's a good one, but it's a tough one. And uh, a real question. Um, would you be willing to tell us uh, any of the content that was cut that uh, that you thought uh, was particularly sorry. interesting? Uh, cut content or changes you would have made? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, there wasn't there there wasn't much stuff. There wasn't like a like a huge chunk of the game that we. Oh wait. Uh... Maybe there was. Well, okay. Uh, basically, the um, the third act of the game did go through some uh, like late cuts. Uh, basically, when like by the time we get to the uh, to the the church, mm-hmm. uh, when we when basically the the final kind of stretch of the game. That part was supposed to be longer and kind of more substantial than than it ended up being. Uh, there was uh, because there the, and and you know ultimately I think we've managed to make it work. But the, I remember I distinctly remember being kind of in panic mode because I've had uh, because I had a lot of like expository stuff that I wanted to just cram in there and to, to just simply explain some of the plot points and, and, and you know, and I, I do remember we had to make some adjustments to make that work, to make it all just fit in. All right. I, 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 got, I got a question about that last part of the game. And uh, this is, I, I, I love Observer, but when you get past the church and you start seeing like flesh on the walls in real life, yeah, 
So throughout the entire game, they had the separation between the real life horror, which was this like world in decline, versus the jacked in horror, which was the flesh monsters and stuff. And then that last part of the game, it starts meshing into the real world. And I was confused. Like, isn't this supposed to be separate? So what was up with that? Well, there's always the question of whether you're really in the quote unquote real world at, at any certain, at any given point. I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna go into like, uh, like, uh, if I, I mean, forgive me if I don't go into like full-on just expl- explanation mode because that's, I mean, I, I find it fairly pointless. Like, if if I tell you, like, will it retroactively make you, you know, enjoy the, that last segment of the game more? I mean, probably not. The but. Definitely. I mean, we were definitely going for a for a more kind of a fever dream. Is this real? Is any of this real feel uh, in that last stretch of the game? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no. And I'm, I'm just I'm just saying that uh, it definitely. I mean, I can't be the first person that's ever said they were confused by that part of the game. No, sure. I like it open yeah. to interpretation because it could be that this guy just after all this trauma. You know, just start seeing well, things. It's uh, yeah, that's 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 the one thing that you all, you also have to keep in mind that the, the like Dan Lazarski, uh, the protagonist of Observer, was basically like already uh, even at the start of the game, he was kind of half insane from just all the stuff he see he had seen as you know an observer as this mind hacking cop. Like, it's not an easy job, and it's certainly taken its toll on him. Yeah, no, and I I get that. I'm just saying that as a... uh, When comparing Observer to Layers of Fear, I definitely did like Mm -hmm. that Observer seemed to have this uh, separation between the world of the surreal and the world of reality, which had their two differentiated viewpoints of what is horrifying. And, Mm -hmm. you know, especially in the real world you had this like werewolf serial killer, which is scary enough on its own that I, I personally didn't need the walls to be bleeding at that point to like sell the horror. But that's just, that's just me, you know? No, I, I totally get it. Uh, but then again, you know, you need to, and, and I get what you're saying with the separation and kind of uh, the parts of the game being much more grounded and, and you know, in reality. Uh, but then again, you have to, break it up a little at a certain point you have to kind of subvert expectations as well and you know sure if it all becomes a bit too convoluted and confusing that's that's on us yeah but still i i generally think it's actually on the players when it's too confusing because most gamers are idiots so don't worry you're fine it's the (laughs) gamer's fault i would say the overwhelming majority if not all of them yeah i would 98 percent Maybe so it's usually not your fault. Maybe 110. I'm just really, really smart. So, you know, you should probably, like, next time before you come up with a game, send it to me first. You're like, does this make perfect sense to you? And if it doesn't, remake it. I, I think I actually cut in when you were talking about things you'd have to cut. So is there anything else that you had to, to cut or alter that you would like to talk about? Mm, no, nothing else, I don't think. I mean, there wasn't... Uh... I mean, there's always ideas. Any, you know, uh, any game development cycle 
you know, a lot of stuff ends up on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there wasn't like this one thing that I really wanted to get into it, uh, but just couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Barbara described it as game design is a process of killing your darlings. That's what she said. Yes. Yes. That's, <laughs> that's a lovely way of putting it. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I personally, I'm a really big fan of Blooper Team games. The the ones, I mean, obviously, I'm a huge fan of Basement Brawl. That was pretty much the pinnacle well, clearly. of clearly what clearly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, talking about Layers of Fear on, um, I'm I'm a, I'm a big fan of what you guys have come up with, especially in the sense of like so many horror games uh, are are trying to ride the line of being. Uh, a, a scary but also like a- accessible um, because horror like at its core should be mm. minimalistic in mechanics you know it should be easily accessible for anyone because the, the core emotive process is fear which all of us uh, uh, can relate to and I've always felt that Blue Team does, does a really good job with that and that you can see the evolution of these ideas throughout their, throughout their games um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys uh come up with next yeah <laughs> <laughs> nothing you want to uh reveal or spoil here on here on the show you want to tell us exactly what your slate of upcoming titles is <laughs> yes with release dates uh no uh i mean sure we have, have some stuff cooking uh possibly some very exciting stuff but i don't want to jinx it also not planning to get fired anytime yeah soon. yeah yeah oh that reminds me uh, i forgot to ask the, yeah. the 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 questions about you in the industry how did you become a video game writer uh well with me it was pretty much a series of very happy or unhappy if you don't like my writing coincidences <laughs> Um, I was basically, uh, I, 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 I came kind of, I, I came to it late in life, I would say, cause I'm an old fart. I'm 35. Mm. Uh, and I, um, I spent most of my twenties doing, I, I worked, I worked in, uh, localizations and I also did some part-time, uh, game journalism, mm. uh, that very lofty term. To use. <laughs> hey, you're talking uh, to a professional games journalist here, so. <laughs> well, of course, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure you are. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so yeah, and you know, uh, writing was just always something that I that you know I was old towards. I, I always something I just always did, and uh, so one day a friend of mine who at the time was Bloober's uh, PR guy. Uh, he just contacted me kind of out of the blue and said, hey, you can sort of write and you like creepy, weird shit. So maybe you should give these guys a call. And so I did and I, you know, I and we had a chat and, you know, we basically kind of, uh, they, they, they saw that I had the right kind of sensibilities and they let me try out for a writer and I did and they liked what they read mm-hmm. so yeah so basically in the span of like uh, three months I uh, I became Bloober's like main 
ride her. That must have been uh, which, quite the change. Yeah, it was also weird because I, I kind of learned, like I, I, I learned of it by accident. Like I just, I, because I, I wrote, you know, I wrote layers one, but I, it was kind of, I, I almost treated it like a part-time job because I still had my other, you know, responsibilities back then. Uh, so I, it was, it was just kind of a, yeah, that's a neat summer adventure to write for a horror game. Mm-hmm. And then one, and then one of the designers like called me up one day, and and he started asking me these really kind of intense questions about like the story and some you know design choices and and whatnot. And I'm like, like why why are you asking me? Like what what do I? I'm just you know I just write some stuff. And he's like, well, you're kind of our lead writer. And I was like, aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, and basically, and like a month later, we were already discussing Observer. So that was <laughs> the weird ass way I got into the video game industry. That is that is a weird ass way to get into it. Um, yeah. And you know, the funny thing is, is that uh, Observer. Yeah, that's 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 a funny story that it, it came about that way because, as from what I understand, like Layers of Fear originally uh, was kind of this. Okay, let's. Let's do a side project while we are trying to figure out what we're doing next. And it just kind of blew up and became a much bigger thing than they expected it to be. And now yeah. you guys are like one of the horror game indie creators that is like well known. It's like you guys, uh, Red Barrel Games, the Chinese Room Made Amnesia. You know, there's a, there's a few of these indie developers but you guys have kind of like grown a lot since that layers of fear what's it like having been there during this period of growth uh exciting confusing like (laughs) it's like for me especially because this i mean bloober is my first like like it was my first gig what i actually had to like get up in the morning and go to work. I would always, like, earlier in life, I would always just work, you know, from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not a, you know, it, it, it took some kind of adjusting, too, because I'm not a people person. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually have, like, legitimate trouble even, like, recognizing and memorizing faces. So... It, it, and all of a sudden, um, I'm in this studio and there's like 60 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was kind of, you know, at first, yeah, you know, it was it was both wonderful and very kind of, you know, scary. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I imagine. Yeah. Um, so for any young writers out there that are trying to get into the video game industry, do you have any advice for them on what to do to try to make it big? Mm-hmm. Well, make sure you know how to write well. That's that's hard. That's yeah. that's yeah, it is hard. But that's kind of the it's kind of the prerequisite. Surprise of entry. Uh, <laughs> no. What'd you say? That's the price of entry. It's the price of entry. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Like speaking for 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 myself, I we're not actively looking for writers right now, but I do get. You know, people do send me like portfolios from time to time, and really, if I if I see, you know, I get them, and 
whenever I see someone who who looks promising, I, I you know I do my darndest to kind of present them as a worthy candidate uh, for for our staff. But you know it doesn't happen that often that I see something like really impressive. And I'm, it's not like I'm you know getting on up on my high horse and like I'm this one because. I don't consider myself a great writer. I'm decent on, on, on my good days. But still, like, a lot of people, it's almost like it's it's hard to, people don't really know what, you know, what the job entails. Mm-hmm. I, I get, sometimes I get very weird, like, portfolios where people have all this, like, yeah, I used to work at a theater and... I, I I don't know. I watch a lot of movies and I I write sometimes and I'm like, well, cool, but do you, you know, do you actually know what this job is all about? So, yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll wrap up with uh with this. I've been trying I've been trying to uh tell Barbara to pitch this guys to you for a while. But now that I have you here, perfect idea for the next Bluebird team game. You ready for it? Mm-hmm. Hit me. It's a haunted Eurovision contest where every competitor is like a different surreal version of that like country, like a horror version of that country. And it's like a, like an escape game and they all have their own little arenas based on their their cutesy cultural tropes. Because you know how like Eurovision is always like the, the German people will come out in like ridiculous costumes and like someone will be dressed up like a Bavarian maid. Like that, but like horror. Well... Well, first off, I mean, Eurovision is pretty much horror, like, just <laughs> on its own. So, 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 like, to put a, an even creepier spin on it, I'm not sure we're really capable of doing that. Hey, um, you, you're a blooper team. You guys can make a creepy anything. So I think you're ready for the challenge. I think well, it would be more of a challenge to do something not creepy. Like, instead of layers of fear, it's layers of feeling okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm thinking that you know the the one thing that Bluebird team doesn't have is merchandising because none of your characters are like you know Bendy and the Ink Machine. That game is like they they barely sold any copies of the game, but they sell a ton of toys. Like apparently Five Nights at Freddy's makes more money off of their plushies than they do actually off of actually selling. So I'm saying like Haunted Eurovision, you could have like a like a cutesy animatronic bear or something. You know, like a wiener schnitzel, like a like a like a haunted uh, hot dog or something, and sell toys. Yeah, you know what? I'll I'll you know I'll get on it right this second. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, make it happen. I'm, if not, I'm gonna I'm make calling, this game when I'm calling, I. I'm calling my boss right after we're done. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you guys don't make it, I will. And then when I'm selling my my million dollar t- of toys, uh, you're you're gonna you're gonna regret not jumping yeah. on this great idea. Yeah, you'll be laughing all the way to the bank. Sure. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, hey, man, thank you so much for coming on. It's really, it's really great to be able to talk to you and to to learn a little bit more about uh, Observer and the 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 back end of Bluebird. Um, especially because, like I said at the beginning, like so many people, their dream job is to like be a video game writer, but they don't really realize what that day to day job looks like. You know? Yeah. I mean, cool. Thanks for having me. Uh, sorry for rambling it's kind of late 
Oh, dude, but, uh, it's like, I think that as if we're going to have a Polish guest on, we just need to set aside two hours for Ramble. Because every single time <laughs> one of the Poles comes on, they just go on and on and on. It's like they, they think in metaphor. Yeah, well, hey, writer, you know. Yeah, no, you don't. You did not ramble nearly as much as the last guy, so you, you did a great job. I'm going to have to cut that part because uh, I don't want to <laughs> talk shit about any of our previous guests. Anyways, um, yeah, any any final thoughts or impressions before we uh, move on to the discussion, dude? I think we're good. No. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, and hey, thank you so much. I know we've been trying to coordinate this for a while, but it's it's really great for me to be able to, to, to have you on, man. Sure. 